100% of my clients with skin rashes have had gut imbalances based on findings on the stool test. Everybody that I have ever seen with skin rashes, we do stool tests and there is some sort of imbalance in there. And then once we start to address that and rebalance what's happening, we do start to see improvements in what's happening on the skin. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyburn, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Jennifer Brand, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I'm so excited to see you again. We first met, I think it was on Jen Fugo's, Fuego's, um, I think it was like a, like a Monday night call about skin issues. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have skin issues. I also have autoimmune issues and eczema as a kid and eczema as an adult. And I'm sure like many parents, we worry about our kids suffering from things that we did. So welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And yes, it was uh, Jen Fugo uh, was holding some weekly office hours for her clients. And she's a close friend and colleague of mine. And we work closely together. She sees a lot of people with skin rashes. She doesn't see children. So she refers her child cases to me. So again, we work really closely together. So I was on the call and you were on the call. So yeah, it was a great way to connect and great way to meet you. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. And you have a really unique niche, not only kids, kids with skin issues, kids with gut health issues. So my four-year-old Elvis has eczema. It popped up right on his elbow creases Mm -hmm. like five months ago. And I think as, as a mom, we kind of go the net, like the, maybe our first thought is to go the allopathic route. Like, so he went to the pediatrician, the recommendations were hydrocortisone, <laughs> mm-hmm. limit time in the shower, keep the skin moisturized, that it's dry skin. So you got to keep the skin moisturized. And, you know, the thought that came into my head when I was in the office was, I know better. Like, I know there's a better way. And so mm-hmm. I know you like to talk about skin, also bowel movements, which we'll get to. <laughs> um, but when you have a child, right? And a lot of parents don't know where to start, but if you do have a child with skin issues like eczema, where do you start to like wrap your mind around as, as a place to start? That's a really good question. There are so many different aspects to it. And you're right. You know, when we look at allopathic care, very focused on, you know, what goes on the skin and and addressing it or managing symptoms, I should say, topically. Um, you know, the next step is usually looking at allergies, you know, that are potentially causing the uh, triggering the flares. From a functional perspective and from a nutritional perspective as a clinical nutritionist, those are the things I look at. And, you know, we really need to take a broader approach and we do need to look at what goes on, but we also need to look at what goes in and what is around. And so from that nutritional perspective, there are some common food triggers that I recommend that people start with. Sometimes that solves the problem. Typically, the people that come see me, they've tried that and everything else. It hasn't solved the problem, so we do take a deeper look. But for people that haven't started you know, with the basics, I do recommend trying um, gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, 
And then of course, you know, removing any processed food, sugary foods, junk foods, you know, anything like Western style, you know, standard American diet, we kind of want to stay away from that, move to diet of whole real foods. So once we get to that point, if there are still flares, then that does warrant taking a deeper look. And something that I do caution parents and people in general about is our restrictive elimination diets, because then we get into the trap, if you will, of thinking that you know food is the root cause of the problem. And what tends to happen is that we take a few foods out of the diet. So you know, sometimes, for example, let's say somebody was you know on a pretty standard diet, you know, eating dairy, eating gluten, eating those foods I mentioned. You take those out of the diet; they're inflammatory, and you know, often we will have a resolution of symptoms at least for a period of time. However, then symptoms reappear. And so, you know, we think, oh, well, it must be another food. And so we take another food out and then we get some resolution for a little while, but then symptoms come back. Then we take out more foods. So this, if this is happening, and I know this happens to a lot of folks, that's where you stop. You know, if we're at a point where we're removing whole real foods from the diet, the diet's getting smaller and smaller, food is not the root cause of the problem. Yeah. What's the difference between a food sensitivity? of food allergy, right? Which I think, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was at the doctor, they were like, oh, well, we can send them to the allergist and they do the skin prick test. So Mm -hmm. it's a food sensitivity and allergy versus like even a food intolerance. It can be Mm -hmm. confusing, I think. It is. And you know, it's funny, I was um, having a little uh, Instagram DM chat with uh, somebody about this just yesterday. And the terms tend to be used interchangeably in a lot of circles, and it can be very misleading. So an IgE food allergy is an immune response that can go into anaphylaxis. So those are allergy symptoms that are important to understand if there are any. Those are foods, for example, that you know should be avoided. The interesting thing is, too, that even food allergy, these IgE reactions are linked to problems in the gut, which I'm sure we'll get into more about the gut. So that's your IgE. When we're talking about IgG, that's also an immune response, but that's a food sensitivity reaction. So when we're having a food sensitivity reaction, this is um, you know what I mentioned where you're taking foods out of the diet, you get a relief of symptoms for a little while, and then things come back, take more foods out. So those are the food sensitivities. They're not life-threatening like anaphylaxis can be with an IgE reaction. And the IgGs, these food sensitivities, really point to impaired gut health problems in the gut, in particular gut hyperpermeability, which we know as leaky gut. So, you know, when we're having all of these different types of food sensitivities, again, that is a little clue that we need to dig deeper and find out what's happening in the gut microbiome. When we're talking about food intolerances, so a food intolerance, and a lot of people use this one really interchangeably with the food sensitivity. So an intolerance is something more like lactose intolerance, like we're lacking the enzyme, our bodies don't have the ability to process the food, and that's usually not something that you know, your, your body, this is what somebody was asking me, the uh, Instagram DM, but, you know, can somebody, you know, essentially start making those enzymes or, you know, grow out of that? And that's usually not the case. I mean, when we're talking about not having an enzyme, that's at, or the enzyme doesn't work very well, that's usually at like the genetic level, the gene transcription level. So that's not something that 
um, necessarily changes. But then, of course, you know, again, lactose intolerance is probably the most commonly known um, food intolerance. And they have all different kinds of products like the lactase milk or you can take an enzyme, you know, things of that nature. So there's definitely a difference between the three of those. Yes. Why do you think allopathic medicine starts with food allergy? Because I think my mind is like, okay, so if he ate something and, and had like an anaphylactic response, very obvious versus like there's some eczema, oh, let's do an IgE test. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I And I don't know that I have the answer for that. I, I think that when we're talking about eczema, food allergies, environmental allergies, so eczema, allergies, and even asthma in general, those three are considered atopic conditions, which is, you know, allergy that happens somewhere in the body, not necessarily directly related to where something touched you, you know, like a contact allergy. So those atopic conditions, I think, have, you know, some common types of triggers, you know, food again is one, environmental things. And so I think that's just what allopathic medicine gravitates towards. You know, and also, of course, allopathic medicine is not yeah, you know, it's based on a system, not systems and how the body functions together as a whole, which is what we look at at functional medicine. In functional medicine, so I think it's just the difference in probably you know training of the physicians and you know where they're taught to focus their resources and focus that knowledge. Yeah, mm-hmm. when I first saw his eczema, I was like gut issue, and then I started mm-hmm. to think, oh, he has stinky farts, mm-hmm. he has stinky poops. And he has bad breath. And I was like, how does a four-year-old have bad breath, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, for me kind of, you know, having colleagues that are functional medicine doctors, those were the first things that came to my mind. But I'm sure a lot of parents aren't like stinky farts. Yeah, that's a gut issue or Uh a stinky poop. And I know I I read on your website, you're like, I love talking about poop, which I do too. So Favorite. It's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) For people who don't know, Mm -hmm. why does gut health or the lack of gut health, or maybe gut dysbiosis, how does that tie to the skin? Very good question. And to back up a little bit, I do find that really interesting because very often when I start working with a family or you know anybody in general that has skin issues and I start talking about gut health and you know the first reaction is, well, I don't have gut symptoms or my little one doesn't have gut symptoms. What are we talking about here? And then you start inquiring and it's like, okay, well, how often, you know, do you or your little one poop? Oh, just, you know, a couple times a week? No, that's constipation. Something isn't working right. Oh, stinky gas. Okay, yes, that's a symptom. So I think people don't really understand that there are actually gut symptoms involved because some of them seem relatively minor. The other thing, some people really don't have any GI symptoms at all. So what happens and how things are connected so I'll talk a little bit about the gut microbiome first, just in case you know people need a little refresher. But so the gut microbiome really refers to all the different genetic material of all the different microbes that we have in our gut. So we've got like bacteria in there, fungi, protozoa, viruses, all kinds of stuff. And you know these things are supposed to be in there. They live in there and they just live along with us. The gut microbiome has evolved along with us as the host for thousands of years, and it's involved in essential activities that our bodies carry out, including digestion and nutrition, detoxification, 
immunity in our immune system, and it really influences our health or the development of our diseases. And I always love the scientific evidence behind things. And so there is scientific evidence that the intestinal microbiome contributes to the function and dysfunction of other organ systems throughout the body, including the skin. And there's a very complex connection between the gut and the skin. And so really the main way that this happens is because the gut microbiome influences skin health by modulating how the immune system works. So what happens is certain gut bugs produce metabolites that can increase anti-inflammatory activity of the immune system, and other gut bugs can produce metabolites that cause inflammation. So for example, short-chain fatty acids. So these are anti-inflammatory. They are made by good gut bugs when they ferment dietary fiber. So this is why it's important to eat prebiotic foods like quinoa or sweet potatoes, other starchy and non-starchy vegetables. And this is so that those bugs can make the good stuff that our bodies need. Short-chain fatty acids also play an important role in determining the makeup of the skin microbiome, which then influences the defense mechanisms of the skin. So your skin actually has a microbiome too. So lots of bacteria and stuff living on it that is supposed to be there. And there's also a more direct link between the gut microbiome and the skin. So in cases of leaky gut or you know increased gut permeability, which is a factor when we have skin rashes, gut bacteria and the metabolites they produce get out of the gut into the bloodstream, accumulate in the skin, and they can disrupt your skin's healthy balance. And you know it's really interesting. There have been research studies on this that have found that DNA from gut bugs is found in systemic circulation in people with psoriasis. And this is where also, so when we're talking about this leaky gut, gut hyperpermeability, So not only are metabolites from these gut bugs getting out of the gut and into the bloodstream where they trigger these immune responses, that's where our food sensitivities are coming from also. So this is where those food particles are also getting out into the bloodstream where they're not, they don't belong. And again, triggering the immune system. And so that's the other thing too. So we have both of these things happening at the same time. And here we commonly blame food. Well, possibly it's metabolites from these gut bugs that are causing our reactions, maybe not the foods in the first place, or at least a combination of the two. And the really interesting thing is that when we eat in general, we get a die-off of the bugs in our gut, good ones, bad ones, what have you. So just because we're eating, we get more of these toxins. And again, with leaky gut, more of an opportunity for these things to get out into the bloodstream to cause reactions. So it's not necessarily a coincidence that we eat and you know then we get these symptoms and these reactions. So again, it might not even be food. It might have to do more with the toxins coming from the gut bugs. And so when we're talking about the gut microbiome, a diverse gut microbiome, so when we have different kinds of things in there. Like we want that. And this can provide benefits to us and keep us healthy. And then on the other hand, when we're talking about things like gut hyperpermeability and leaky gut, we're talking about a dysbiotic gut environment. And this is where, you know, we what can lead to disease. So gut dysbiosis refers to unbalanced bacteria in there or abnormal immune reactions that we have to those gut bugs. So this is the gut-skin access where a dysbiotic gut environment leads to these skin disorders. And there's tons of research on this, of this leading to atopic dermatitis or eczema as well as psoriasis, acne, and playing a role in rosacea. Wow. 
That was just like the best description. <laughs> Thank you for that. My pleasure. <laughs> and I love that point of like the food sensitivities are not necessarily the root cause of the problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I so- think that's so important to understand. And that's what we are just led to believe that it's food. And, you know, as someone, a little background, you know, my history, I, have minor skin issues. A number of people in my family have either psoriasis, vitiligo, you know, all kinds of stuff. I ended up with IBS and gut problems. And so as somebody that has struggled with gut problems and, you know, way before I became a clinical nutritionist and, you know, started working in this field, you know, managing my symptoms with diet and my diet got smaller and smaller. I became afraid to eat anything. I ended up with anorexia. And I see these disordered eating patterns in many of my clients. I see them in very small children. It starts at a very young age. And so, you know, one of my, this is just one of my soapbox items, if you will. But, you know, when I'm working with clients, especially parents who, you know, again, led to believe that taking foods out of the diet is the way to go, we really need to consider that these little ones need these nutrients to continue to grow and develop normally. We also need these nutrients for our bodies to function the way they're supposed to. We need these nutrients to build and repair healthy skin. So, you know, everything that our bodies do, our biochemistry, the fuel for the biochemistry of our body are nutrients from the foods we eat. So if you think about it that way, it's really counterintuitive that we're restricting our fuel to get results that we're hoping for when in reality, you know, what I see more in practice is that once we start adding foods back into somebody's diet, they actually start improving even before sometimes we start addressing what's happening in the gut. Hmm. That's interesting. Can you explain why like stinky farts, stinky poops and kids and like bad breath is probably not normal? So when we're talking about those types of symptoms, it really does point to that gut dysbiotic environment. It's normal to have some farts and some gas. Like we all have that. Like that's normal. Doesn't necessarily smell great, but you know, it shouldn't be like putrid. There's a difference. And I think we, we all probably know the difference, right? So that isn't necessarily normal. The bad breath, especially in a little one, that definitely points to some sort of bacterial imbalance, something going on that shouldn't be. And it's interesting too, because especially little ones, you know, they're going in a diaper, so the poop looks mushed anyway. So it's kind of hard to tell. But there's something out there called the Bristol stool chart. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I forget where that was developed, maybe somewhere in England, but everybody check it out. So it's the Bristol, B-R-I-S-T-O-L stool chart. And it, it ranks, it shows you pictures. It's a cartoon, of course, but it's like, you know, what your poop is supposed to look like. And so you get a sense of if you're constipated or if you're leaning towards diarrhea. And it's really important. I, I think that in our society, you know, not enough of us talk about poop as much as we should. It's kind of shunned. And so people think that going to the bathroom, you know, one to three times a week is normal. Physicians, allopathic physicians often say, oh, that's normal. It is not normal. We should be going to the bathroom one to three times a day. And if you're not, that is constipation. So I think it is really important to, you know, understand what is normal in terms of digestion, in terms of bowel movements. And if 
there are abnormalities in those aspects of health, then, you know, that is another sign to check out what's happening in the gut. And, you know, and often I find people that are blaming food and and taking more and more foods out of the diet and on these super restrictive diets that when you do start inquiring about their poop, like they're not going to the bathroom every day, or maybe they do have diarrhea or, you know, something of that nature. So I think there is some education that needs to be done around what pooping is supposed to look like and what gut symptoms are supposed to look like. We need to talk about that more. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So after doing an elimination diet to see if symptoms, for example, of like eczema clear, Let's say they don't. What would be some kind of like next steps, especially because you talk about like these bacteria, protozoa, viruses, like, because obviously there's good bacteria, right? And then there's like stuff that probably we should not have in our gut. Yes, yes, good question. So first of all, I want to address an elimination diet. So while I do not believe in continued restriction of, you know, food after food after food, An elimination diet, if carried out appropriately and under direction of somebody trained to help you, can actually be helpful. So the idea is that you take out all possible triggering foods for, and this is key, 21 to 30 days. Like that's it. We're talking three to four weeks. So the idea is that you take these things out of the diet and you know your symptoms will likely improve most people's do you know again we're talking about those ige food sensitivity reactions that will eventually come back but aside from that so after that period of time the idea is to start reintroducing the foods that you suspect as triggers and you do one at a time in a very controlled manner to see if symptoms return if they do then you're sensitive to that food and the idea is to keep that particular food out So this process can actually be really helpful while we are working on addressing the root cause of the problem, which is happening in the gut. So if somebody, you know, wants to do an elimination diet, you know, in a controlled manner appropriately, fine. You know, that I think that's not a bad idea. The next step then is using what I do in my practice is take a look at a comprehensive digestive stool test. This is very different than what you get at your conventional or allopathic doctor. This takes a much deeper look at what's happening in the gut microbiome. And so with this comprehensive digestive stool test, we are looking at the makeup of the gut microbiome. We're looking at the, all the stuff that's supposed to be in there. Is it too high? Is it too low? Either way, you can have symptoms and health problems. Are there things in there that are not supposed to be there at all, like certain you know, protozoa or infectious agents or opportunistic bacteria? Is there an overgrowth of opportunistic bacteria? So we can look at these types of imbalances in the bacterial makeup, in the you know, fungal makeup you know, of everything that's happening in the gut. These tests also take a look at, um, the one I like to use actually act, looks as well if there are anti-glidin antibodies. So is somebody having a reaction to gluten, that's helpful to know. A a lot of people are not super willing to remove gluten from the diet. So sometimes if we see, you know, in the test that, okay, you've got, and this test also shows gut inflammation. It's like, all right, you've got gut inflammation. You know, we see this on the testing. Yes, you've got a dysbiotic gut environment that can contribute to the inflammation, but you also have antibodies. Your body's reacting to gluten. So we need to take that out too. So that can be helpful for some people to understand. We also get to see the immune function of the gut. 
80% of our immune system is located in our gut microbiome. And so when we have this dysbiotic environment happening in there, that's 80% of our immune system that can go haywire. That is a huge chunk of the immune system. And so of course, when we're talking about allergic conditions like eczema, food allergies, asthma, we've got to look at the gut. If something is happening with the immune system, we've got to see what's happening in the gut. So by using a comprehensive digestive stool test, we can see what's happening in there, find out what those imbalances are, and then develop a protocol to address those specific findings for that specific person. I have never seen two stool tests exactly the same. And it's interesting because so, you know, I see a lot of little ones with eczema. Well, I have never seen the same stool test, the same results in any two clients, any two little ones, adults, what have you. And I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. They were asking, well, what are some of the common things that you see? And I really don't. Some people have low levels of good bugs and you know, they have eczema. Some people have high levels of good bugs. They have eczema. So it's very interesting how the dysbiotic environment in general creates an environment in the body where, again, the immune system kind of goes haywire and we get these symptoms. So similar symptoms, very different imbalances depending on the person. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Would you say that kids with potentially like developmental delays or learning delays or even speech delays, that parents should possibly also consider gut health? Absolutely. A lot of the little ones that I see, you know, that are struggling with skin rashes or gut issues, um, even the food allergies, food sensitivity type problems, when you start digging deeper, which is also what we do in functional medicine, you know, and that's something to, that I think we should point out as well that, you know, we're not necessarily, we are talking about skin rashes and eczema and such today, but there is a lot going on in these, in these kids. And typically there are behavior issues. There are mood issues. There's trouble sleeping and it's not necessarily all related to, oh my gosh, you know, he or she is itchy and uncomfortable. There's a lot of other things going on. So again, there's also a gut brain access, like just like we have a gut skin access. And so the gut really is connected to many organ systems way outside of the gut, you know, the brain as well. One of the main things that I see, I would say that I see more of those behavior type problems or concerns in little ones that are eating gluten and dairy. I just do. And, you know, so when we're talking about those types of concerns, Number one, let's take gluten out of the diet. Let's take first, you know, then if that doesn't help after a little while, we can take dairy out of the diet. So that's always a really good place to start. If that doesn't solve the problem, then yes, a comprehensive digestive stool test. And I should say too, when we're talking about taking gluten out of the diet, especially for little ones, there can be withdrawal symptoms. And so we actually want to wean from it. And so, for example, you know, week one, take it out of breakfast. Week two, take it out of breakfast, lunch, breakfast and lunch. Week three, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Week four, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. And when it's done that way, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I'll, I'll tell, you know, tell parents, okay, we're, we're going to have to get rid of the gluten. And, you know, well, little so-and-so doesn't eat anything else. So we talk about, well, 
let's talk about what we can add to this. It's not taking away. It's like, let's talk about what we can add. And there are so many different gluten-free grain options and products out there nowadays. You know, and at this stage, of course, like a gluten-free product is processed. We don't really want to do that either. But at this stage, at least get to the gluten-free product and away from the regular gluten product. But I do find that when little ones are weaned from gluten, it does tend to help with many different types of health concerns. If the gluten alone doesn't do it, then I recommend you know people can try dairy. That's another really common one. And something else to keep in mind with gluten, if your body reacts to it and you stop eating it, your body can continue to have that immune response to it for up to six months, even if you're not eating it. So it takes a while for it wow. to clear out. Typically, if somebody's eating it all the time and they take it out, they will feel better pretty quickly, but the body can keep reacting for a while. So it is not just an overnight, like, boom, you know, I feel better. It's like, you've got to give it some time. Wow. I did not know it was that long. (laughs) It's it's a while. It's a long time. And, you know, and I've also seen too. So, you know, for example, in these stool tests that I mentioned that have those anti-glidin antibody markers, they check for that. I have seen that marker high in, you know, babies, for example, that are exclusively breastfed and mom, you know, has her own autoimmune conditions and has been gluten-free for years, yet the marker is still high in the little one. And, you know, this is just goes to show you that everything we do is contaminated with gluten. It's in body care products. It's, I mean, it's really in everything. And, you know, this is not a sign to like freak out and, you know, try to remove everything. It's just like, do the best you can, stay away from it in the diet and, you know, leave it at that. Because I think at this stage, just the way our system is set up, our food system, our products, I don't know that we can actually avoid it completely. So, you know, which is another good reason, like keeping it out of the diet, at least doing what we can to control how much of it goes in. (laughs) So we can definitely control the amount of it that we eat. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think another interesting point is like getting the community that your child is in on board. So for Mm -hmm. example, like I put Elvis on a gluten-free diet and then I Mm -hmm. found out that like his school has snack time with like gluten-full crackers. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, That's a challenge for many parents. And that's that's a really tricky one. And, you know, typically my recommendation for that, it's like, we can do the best we can. And this leads me back to, we don't want to give children disordered eating habits and, you know, create that at such a young age. And so if the kid is at school or if the kid is at a birthday party, you know, it's, I like to say, you know what, let them eat something. If they have a reaction, they have a reaction. You know, as long as we're not talking about celiac disease or something that is like extremely severe, like then you just have to be gluten-free. But, you know, if we're talking about, okay, you know, it's a sensitivity, it might make my skin rash flare. I mean, you really can weigh the pros and cons of it. Of course, we don't want to have a skin rash flare. Of course, we don't want to be uncomfortable. But, you know, sometimes it actually may be more important to let the kid have fun and to not you know, give them disordered eating habits for the future. Yeah. And that's, that's such a great point. And I didn't, I never as a parent thought, oh, it could start so young. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elvis came home one day and he's like, I want to eat everyone else's crackers because we had gotten like special gluten-free crackers. And he was just like, 
I don't want to be different. I want to like join in and what everyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. And I do have to say like the birthday parties, I don't know culturally how we got to this place where it's like pizza and cake was like, right. <laughs> <laughs> every time I go to a kid's birthday party, I'm just like, oh my God, how did we, how did we get to this place that this yeah. is the norm? So what nutrients are important for healthy skin? And then, you know, sharing where are those nutrients found, but what foods? That is a really good idea. And I will pull up my cheat sheet because I don't have them all memorized. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you shared like your top, your top three, right? Because I know I, I I actually checked out your, your cheat sheet last night because you uh-huh. have some great PDFs to share on your website. Mm-hmm. We can put those in the show notes. And I was like, wow, there are so many nutrients and wow, they are found in so many foods. Yeah. And then my third thought was, oh my God, my kid doesn't eat any of those foods because he's like, you know, mm-hmm. he wants like chicken nuggets and yeah. mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be really tricky. And there are a lot of nutrients for healthy skin. I think some of the most important ones are vitamin A, zinc, selenium is really important for healthy skin, vitamin D. And then, you know, our B vitamins are super important as well. Fatty acids are really important. And, you know, when we're talking about skin health, it's also very closely tied to detoxification. And so there's also, you know, nutrients that we need for phase one and phase two detoxification. So also there, we're talking about like different vitamins and minerals, as well as antioxidants, different amino acids. And so if we're talking about, for example, let's start with vitamin A, because I think that's a common one that people think of when they think of healthy skin. And so vitamin A is interesting. So it's in the form of um, carotenoids in a lot of fruits and vegetables. So like we're talking about you know, carrots, for example, so orange, yellow type colored vegetables and fruits. So in your body, carotenoids are converted to vitamin A, like the active form, so your body can use it. But when we have problems with gut health, that conversion is kind of weak anyway. But when we have gut problems like this dysbiotic stuff happening, that conversion is even weaker. So, you know, an active vitamin A works better, if you will. And so, you know, vitamin A is found in foods like some of those that we don't eat often, like liver, cod liver oil, which is a recommendation that I make for kids, like as long as you're two and up, their cod liver oils a great source of the omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, as well as vitamin A. Um, vitamin A is also in eggs. And so that's the active form. And then we're talking about the inactive form that your body has to convert like sweet potato, carrots, cantaloupe, mango, things like that. It's even in greens, like collard greens and spinach. Vitamin D. So I think we've all heard of vitamin D. Most people are deficient in it. It's not found in tons of foods. So most people do need to supplement, but it is an animal products like, you know, salmon, again, cod liver oil, oysters, eggs, it's in mushrooms, but most of our vitamin D comes from the sunlight hitting our skin and a chemical reaction that happens within the skin. And you know, most of us nowadays are afraid to go outside and we slather ourselves up with sunscreen. So we're not yes. getting our vitamin D. And then B vitamins. So B12 is a really important one. B12 is only found naturally in animal products. You do have some that can be made by gut bacteria. It is not enough for the needs of the body. And then when we have a dysbiotic gut environment, likely that's not happening enough either. So, you know, insult to injury right there. 
you know, and then other B vitamins, a lot of these are found in, you know, spinach and asparagus, um, broccoli, and then of course, again, your organ meats and your quality animal products. So when we're talking about animal products, it is important where you can, because of course it's more expensive, but where possible, go organic, grass-fed, pastured, free-ranged, wild-caught, because when we don't, there are pesticides and, you know, chemicals, antibiotics, and, you know, just junk that can actually be triggering for the immune system and cause more problems. Yeah. What Mm -hmm. about, you mentioned detoxification pathways. And I know for Mm -hmm. myself, I think it got picked up on an ion test. I'm not sure that I was like a poor type two detoxifier. Mm -hmm. You know, my thought is like, okay, my, my kid is part of my genetic makeup. Maybe he is a poor type two phase two detoxifier. Can you speak to how you would support detoxification pathways? Yes. So we detox not by juicing and not by, you know, cleansing. Celery juice does not detox you. People ask me about celery juice all the time. And I say, well, if you like celery juice, then you can drink it. Some people say that it helps them. You know, I, anyway, (laughs) that's a whole thing. Like if you like celery juice, great. So that's one thing. But so the way detoxification works kind of in a nutshell, so this will be very simplified. But let's say for the purposes of you know the simplification, we've got three phases of detox. So basically things go through phase one where they are changed. So these toxins get you know kind of sucked out of the bloodstream, go through the liver, go through phase one. They're actually made more toxic in phase one. And so in order to process these toxins in phase one, we need different vitamins and minerals for the most part. So after phase one, these more toxic things float around for like a second. Between phases one and two, there are a bunch of different antioxidants. So this is where antioxidants are important because again, these things are more toxic. So those antioxidant nutrients kind of keep them in check. So we're talking about like glutathione, vitamin C, vitamin A is an antioxidant nutrient. So is vitamin E. And then the toxins go to phase two where they are attached, if you will, to something else so that the body can then excrete them. So these things that are more toxic then go through the second process where they're neutralized essentially. And that process for phase two requires a lot of different amino acids. And so this is where it's really important to make sure that we're getting in complete proteins by complete proteins, this means that they, they contain all of the essential amino acids that our bodies need. So there are, it depends where you look, there's like 21, 22. So let's say 21 different amino acids. They keep, they find new ones all the time. But so we've got these amino acids that are the building blocks for like everything that our body does, including building and repairing healthy skin. And so there are nine of them which are essential, which means they have to come from the diet because your body can't make them. The rest of them, your body can make out of those essentials. Those essentials are found completely in animal products. So this is why I'm also a big advocate of eating quality animal foods. There's also a group of amino acids that are called conditionally essential. And so that means that Your body can make them sometimes, but when you're under stress or illness or what have you, and, you know, skin rashes, the body struggling with allergies, that's a stress on the body. The body cannot make those conditionally essentials, so those have to come from the diet too. Animal proteins contain all of those as well. 
plant proteins do contain some amino acids, they contain some essentials, but they don't contain all of them like animal products do, which is why if you're on a completely plant-based diet, you know, they talk about food combining, you know, to make a complete protein like beans and rice or mac and cheese is actually a complete protein. So phase two runs off of these amino acids. So that's why it's important to get those in. And what happens is it takes the toxins and kind of wraps them up into a neat little package. Then that package goes to the gut where it's supposed to get excreted, like you poop out the toxins. Well, if you're constipated, so not going to the bathroom every day, or if you have gut dysbiosis, that little package gets unwrapped, the toxins fly out and get reabsorbed back into your bloodstream and get recirculated. So this is where detox plays an important role in skin health. So those toxins back out into the gut, back out into the bloodstream, continuing to trigger that immune response that is leading to the skin rash reactions that somebody might be having. I never knew that. Like that whole phases. I never do that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Just, I guess, to like, kind of like wrap it up into a package, like what mm-hmm. would you want parents, right? Cause it can feel often overwhelming for me. It's my four-year-old has eczema. I, I know I have friends who are parents that have babies that are eczema and you think, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, this baby like just came out this like little perfect package. How could it be struggling with its issues? Is it you know, genetics? Is it I'm having an allergic reaction to something and then breastfeeding and they're having a reaction to something? I guess for like the parents who might feel overwhelmed, what was the message that you would want them to know? You know, I I think number one, parents, it's not your fault. You know, I get a lot of parents that feel responsible, especially if mom is, you know, breastfeeding and baby is exclusively breastfed, you know, and baby has rashes. So number one, I like to tell parents this because, you know, some of the first things I hear from parents, that the first things that come out of their mouth is she or he was C-section. I had to take antibiotics, you know, during delivery or during pregnancy. I wasn't able to breastfeed, so we had to use formula, things like that. So yes, I have seen lots of little ones under those conditions that have skin rashes. I have seen just as many babies that are vaginally born, breastfed forever, never touched an antibiotic, you know, haven't had vaccines. I mean, like you name it, like the perfect, you know, so-called perfect environment, like wrapped up in a neat little package. They have skin rashes too. So number one is that things happen. It is not parents' fault as to, you know, why this is happening in the first place. So I think beyond, you know, taking those main trigger foods out of the diet. So again, gluten and mom, you know, if you're nursing and baby has rashes, you can try removing gluten and dairy, eggs are a big trigger and any, you know, processed junk food, things like that. Beyond that, I I think, you know, before, because, you know, it just spins and we end up on these really restrictive diets and then, and parents end up going nuts and trying this cleanser and that cleanser and this natural, you know, there's air filters everywhere in the house and water filters, which are all good things to do. But, you know, it really boils down to looking at what's happening in the gut microbiome. So I think the simplest thing to do is really like if you've tried a handful of things, it's not getting better, you know, just stop right there and take a look at what's happening in the gut. I think the sooner that somebody does that, the better the results will be. It tends to be that the length of time something has been happening, you know, and how deeply rooted those imbalances are plays a role often in how long it takes to resolve the problem. 
So that said, I have seen some little ones, like once we go in and take a look at what's happening in the gut, get resolution like in a few months of their skin rashes. I would say that's more unusual. On average, it takes about six months to start getting results. I have some little ones now that I've been working with for just over a year and they're doing a lot better, you know, to the point where they're itchy on occasion and, you know, not really flaring anymore. They might have a flare like once every few months. So sometimes it can be really slow. But I I think number one is to, you know, really consider taking a look at gut health to figure out what's going on in there. So I'll say this, 100% of my clients with skin rashes have had gut imbalances based on findings on the stool test. Everybody that I have ever seen with skin rashes, we do stool test and there is some sort of imbalance in there. And then once we start to address that and rebalance what's happening, we do start to see improvements in what's happening on the skin. That's so great. What about parents who have traveled with their kids, right? Especially Mm -hmm. like third world travel, you don't know Mm -hmm. the cleanliness of the water, the food, the contamination. But my, my initial reaction is, oh, well, I should just not travel when my my younger one is young. (laughs) But I know that's not really like, that's Mm -hmm. not really feasible. There is a possibility that, you know, when we're in other countries, I mean, it's not uncommon that somebody can pick up a parasite. You know, that happens frequently. The other thing too, that's interesting is that, you know, we all have stuff in our gut and if every single person, you know, did a stool test, there are probably imbalances, you know, but if you're not having symptoms, there's really not a need to go there. And, and I think the difference is, you know, everybody's immune system is a bit different. You know, genetics definitely play a role as well. So two people can be exposed to the same thing and somebody can get symptoms and, you know, somebody else not. I would just say, you know, and what I do tell parents is, you know, live your life, enjoy it and check the gut and we'll resolve what's happening in there. But, you know, trying to avoid life situations or amazing opportunities like traveling internationally is something that is a beautiful experience for people of any age. And so, you know, I don't want to see things like that limited, just like I don't want to see diets limited, you know? It's like, I think it's really important that we live our lives and that we understand that imbalances can develop in anybody at any time. And with a functional medicine approach, they can be resolved. <laughs> some That's take amazing. longer. Yeah, some take longer than others, of course. And, you know, things are difficult to kind of suss out and figure out what's happening at times. But the way I feel about things is that there is always something that we can do to help somebody feel better. Always. Yeah. You make it sound so easy. Heal the gut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, it's it's kind of straightforward. It's like you look at the gut and, you know, it, it's, yeah, you look at the gut, you resolve the imbalances, which again, can be a complicated process. Like once you find out what's happening in there, if there's a lot going on, it can take a long time to resolve. There are supplements involved, you know, it involves following a protocol. So it's not simple, but it's, I feel it's simpler than continuing to, you know, throw darts in the dark with, you know, taking this out of the diet and that out of the diet and trying, you know, some steroid cream for a little while. Okay. The flare went away. Now let's take this out of the diet. Now, like if you're spinning, it's like, just stop. Let's figure out what's happening inside and resolve those imbalances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where can people find you? Because I think on your website, you have some great transformation Mm -hmm. photos and just some great resources for people. Yeah. So I'm at jenniferkarenbrand.com. 
Karen is spelled C-A-R-Y-N, but if you type it in K-A-R-E-N, it will go to me also. And then I'm on Instagram as Jennifer Karen, C-A-R-Y-N brand. My website, I'm very into writing resources and such. So there's a lot of free information there. So I encourage people to go take advantage of it all research-based. And then my Instagram account too, I post a lot of research, tips and tricks, and just information to help folks beat their skin rashes and themselves and their little ones. Yeah. I love all the scientific research that you post. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. 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 I'm a science geek, so it's kind of fun for me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sitting down. It was so great to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I appreciate it. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you wanna share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.